When someone goes missing, the absence of a loved one has deep impacts on their families and friends. And when an unidentified body is found, their absence of an identity ripples through communities. It impacts the people who found them, the people working their case. And we hope there are people here who will keep looking for answers. In 1981, a woman is found in a ditch on a country road in Ohio and buried in a small cemetery under the name Jane Doe. This is her story and the story of all the people who carried her forward until she could be laid to rest with her name. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This episode features actor Mercedes Rose. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Normally, we start these podcasts, I ask you a question, but we do not have time for that today. Like, we have multiple different types of sciences to cover. We've got cults. We've got my favorite nonprofit, DNA Doe Project. So we have to dive in. Sounds like a lot. And and you just casually put cults into that sentence. Yeah, it's going to take us a little bit to get there, but we're getting there. Okay, let's get there. Okay, so we are going to April 24th, 1981, and we're landing in Troy, Ohio. So 1981, Ohio. So Troy is a very small town, 20 miles north of Dayton, Ohio. It's like small town America. We're talking land of strawberry festivals. It sounds nice. Yeah, they even paint like strawberries on the little roads. That is adorable. It's so cute. So maybe this sounds like a nice place. Troy, yes. I think. I think. Yes. I guess if it's not, we'll hear from the people of Troy. If you're from Troy and it's not as pleasant as strawberries painted on sidewalks, let us know. So it's April 24th and it's a pretty chilly day. It's like kind of the spring weather that we have here where like, you know, one day's really warm and next day's really cold. April 24th is in the 40s. It's like 20 degrees colder than the day before. I don't know why I'm talking so much about the weather. I'm fascinated. <laughs> it's like this chilly day and Greg Bridenbaugh is on a mission. He is a lieutenant in the Ludlow Fire Department, and he is moving from his home on State Route 55 to a house on Greenlee Road. The drive isn't really that far. You know, you take Route 55 to Greenlee, turn on Horseshoe Bend Road, and back onto Greenlee. So he's actually moving residents? Yes. Okay. Not moving a house or anything. Right. Yes. Um, this place is pretty rural. And I'm guessing back in 1981, it's even more desolate. In fact, I think the place Greg is moving to might be the only house on this stretch of road. But like, that's what he's looking for, a quiet place in the country. And was it a quiet place in the country? I think as soon as you say, I want a quiet place in the country, it is not that. Right. And I've just gotten the habit of not knowing where you're going with these stories sometimes. So I am just expecting anything at this point. Right. So... Greg is accompanied by his two friends, two brothers named Neil and Mark Hoffman. And along the way, Greg is in the back of the trailer. I'm going to pause here because Greg, I don't know if you're listening, but like man of the fire department, you know and I know that you should not be riding in the back of a trailer. So it was the trailer filled with his furniture. I don't know. And he's riding back there. He's riding back there. Okay. So it was just like a little safety advice. Right. We don't do it. Don't do that. So along the way on Greenlee Road, 
not far from his new home, he sees some clothing, mostly what looks like a brown leather jacket in a ditch. So there's nothing around here. It's relatively flat. There's cornfields. There's very few trees. So I'm guessing that this is like pretty visible as they go by. He doesn't do anything on that trip. It's like quite a welcome to the neighborhood type situation here, I feel like we're going into. Yes. So on the way past again, it's like a little after 10 in the morning. He sees it and he points it out to his friends that this coat, because this coat is a nice coat. And like any good friend, Greg doesn't get out and check it himself. He has his friend Neil get out and look. Poor Neil. Poor Neil. So Neil gets out and says, oh my God, there's a woman in the coat. Okay. I kind of, I felt like we were heading that way. Yes. This is a really horrible way to start your new home. Right. Yes. Yeah. It is, in fact, a woman, and she's on her side in a fetal position. And they're not really sure what's going on, but they think that she might be deceased. This is pre-cell phone days, so Greg, you know, hasn't had a chance to set up the phone at his new place. And so he uses his radio to contact dispatch at the fire department and let them know what he's found. So authorities arrive, and they discover that, in fact, the woman in the ditch has passed away. She has a visible wound to her forehead, and some initial thoughts are this might be, like, an accidental death. Her body is taken to the Montgomery County Coroner's Office in Dayton, and two things are happening here. One, she has no identification on her, so they're going to want to find out who she is. And two, they're looking to find out what happened to her. So at this point, did they think that maybe she was just hit by a car or something? Yeah, something like that. Okay. And so they start cataloging, like, kind of everything about her. She's wearing a very distinct poncho jacket. It's brown and it has fringe along the seams. And the inside is lined in, like, a purple fabric. She's also got on bell bottoms and a brown turtleneck sweater with orange pattern on the front. And she is wearing underwear, but she is without her socks and shoes. So that makes it less likely that she was, like, walking along the side of the road then and got hit by a car. Right. Presumably she could be barefoot, but her... Feet are clean. So that doesn't look like she was barefoot. No. And physically, she's pretty striking. She's a white woman with light brown eyes and freckles. She's got this long reddish brown hair that's tied into two braids. And she also has what's described as good hygiene. Like her teeth are in good condition, including her wisdom teeth. She has a porcelain crown on an incisor. And her clothing, there's like a cleanliness to her clothing and dental care which indicates that she had, like, access to services and care. She does have some scars, one beneath her chin and one on her wrist and both arms and one ankle. It wasn't believed that any of these are self-harm scars. Um, But really, like, the main detail that stands out is this, like, long reddish-brown hair tied into these two braids. Why is that a main detail? It's, like, a really striking feature, And if you look at drawings and photos of her at the time, it it really stands out. They are able to tell that she's had trauma to her head and neck and that also she's been strangled. So this is no longer an accident possibility. She also has a lacerated liver. How does that happen? You know, like livers are quite sturdy. They're like inside. Yeah. And they're sturdy. So how does... Yeah, so probably some like like blunt force kind of trauma, I'm guessing. Okay. 
So she's not in good shape. No. They can also tell that she has not been sexually assaulted. And the assistant county coroner, Walter Meeker, says that he believes her body was placed in this ditch a good 36 to 40 hours before she was found. And because of the positioning of her body and what they saw on scene, there's a strong belief that she was killed elsewhere and then brought here. So she was put in the ditch already, passed away. Yes. So they know someone's harmed her, but that's kind of where things come to a halt. They run her post-mortem photo in the papers. They also run a sketch of her trying to find out who she might be. Is running a post-mortem photo something that people do often in papers? Because it just seems like that would be, it could be helpful, but it could also be very disturbing. Right. I think that happens less commonly today than it might have in the past. Okay. They get hundreds of calls but none of those calls like lead them in any direction to find out anything about her. The first premise is that she must be like a local person, but it's not long after that that the presumption is that she might be a hitchhiker from out of the area, particularly when no one locally starts to claim her. By summer, she hasn't been identified, and so she is buried in Troy's Riverside Cemetery, and some of the investigators on her case actually serve as her pallbearers. Because they don't know who she is, she's laid to rest with a stone that gives her name as Jane Doe. Is there like a title that she goes by? Not at this moment, no. Okay. One of the earliest theories or connections they try to make is to what is known as the Redhead Murders. And this was a series of murders that spanned from Pennsylvania down through Arkansas and Mississippi, in which... Red-headed women were murdered along highways between, like, 1978 to 1992. Okay, so she fits that description then. Yes. Um, many of those women went unidentified for long periods of time, and there's a lot of debate about those murders. Like, are they committed by, like, one redhead-hating killer, or is it just, like, pattern recognition? But in 1985, so four years after she was found, Please state that they don't think that this Jane Doe is connected to those at all. And I'm not sure what specifically led them in that direction, but they decided not to pursue that line of thought. Okay, so right now we don't know. We're moving away from that theory. Yeah. So that was just a, a prominent theory at the time just because she is kind of in that geographic region, time frame, hair color, etc. But, you know, what they do know is that she's been murdered but without any idea of who she is or where she came from, finding her killer is like next to impossible. Right. And you said this is a pretty small town too. Right. And they just still don't know where she's from. So that would make it so much harder. Right. I mean, there have been cases of unidentified persons and their killers being like tried or convicted in their case. But in this case, they don't even know where to start with her. Right, there's no connections. There's no no people to connect her to. Yeah, there's nothing. Okay. And like a lot of Jane Doe's, the years kind of just keep going by without getting any identification for her. So kind of this weird phenomenon happens when people start really going online. They're finding like communities of people. And some of those communities are like people who are interested in solving cold cases and learning about them and discussing them. And so because of her distinct coat, those communities of online people who care about these kinds of cases give her the name Buckskin Doe. So how many years have passed now between, because they found her in 1981 and now we're, we, we've popularized 
the internet to the yeah. point where people are actually like digging into some of these cold cases. So, yeah, so like we're a good like 20 years out. Okay. The other thing that happens is um, not only are they just interested in general cases, but they become really particularly interested in her story. And she is known as Buckskin Girl on these community forums and becomes one of the most popular Jane Doe's in the country. So so what's making her story so interesting for these people online? I think there's like a combination of factors. One, I don't think I mentioned before, but they think that she's quite young, sometime in her late teens. Okay. Okay. She's white. She's pretty. At some point, like the Riverside Cemetery clerk says kind of like what we're all thinking, which is like she looks like Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. With her hair and its braids. And that coat is like really so distinct and kind of out of place in like early 1980s fashion that it stands out. Right. Because it's something, it sounds like she was just kind of like somebody from the the 60s at that right. point, right? Yeah. So. Um, so seeing this fashion in the 80s, I think people start wondering like why and who might she be? Where'd she get the coat? So all of this predates the creation of NamUs, the National Missing and Identified Person System database. But her profile goes up on sites like the Doe Network, which started in 1999, and the Charlie Project, which started in 2004. And people who are trying to crowdsource community information about her go to places like WebSleuth, where there are message boards that date back all the way to like 2005 discussing her case. And there are thousands of posts about her. Is it typical for some of these cases to be so popular among the people? Yeah, you'll see some cases just really get like a collective large amount of attention. And hers was one of them. Um, there was even like a Facebook page made for her. And as of this year, there are currently 1,700 followers of her page. When NamUs comes on board, she gets a profile with them. And in about 10 years or so, she has 227 exclusions listed for her. What are exclusions? So this is when either law enforcement or everyday people submit different missing persons reports and say, hey, is this her? And so as of 2018, she had 227 of those, which suggests that people were sending in various suggestions on a regular basis for her. So there are that many other young redheaded girls out missing that this could be? Not necessarily redheaded, right? But ideally, they kind of fit the profile, like that they have some attributes that, you know, based on time and location and you know, physical features, they might match up with her. It's still scary to think that there's that many that they can be comparing her to. Yeah. That are unsolved. Right. I mean, you know, the reality is, of course, there's like thousands of missing women in the United States. And that includes for kind of just like that time frame that she was found. Her case like lingers so long that the original investigators retire. So we're, we're, we're way past. Are we past 20 years now? Yeah, I mean, you know, a significant amount of time has passed. So we're we're in around 2016. Okay. Because her case file gets passed to the desk of Stephen Hickey, who works for the Miami County Sheriff's Department. And he's so young that he wasn't even born yet when she went missing. So this is like 
Is this 35 years now? Yeah. And so he's under 35. Yeah. That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, like she went missing before I was born. Not for you. Not for me. (laughs) No, no, no. He's the one who ends up fielding a communication from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they tell him that they are about to remove Buckskin Doe's profile from their database because she no longer meets certain criteria. What would the certain criteria be? I don't know. It's not specified, but for some reason, she's no longer meeting like kind of the threshold of who they include. Does it really like do anything for them to take one off? Like it seems like this is just an online database, right? Right. So why not just leave her on there? I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. I don't like this decision. Right. Well, he didn't either, but they did recommend something that sets her story into a completely different direction. They recommend sending her clothing that they still have in storage to a palynologist. A palynologist. Right. Okay, so Amy, I know I don't know what a palynologist is, and I'm betting a lot of our listeners don't know either. So for the for those of us who don't know what a palynologist is, please explain. So this is the part where I said we're going to talk about all these cool sciences. So this is when someone looks at something like an article of clothing under a microscope, and they are looking for what types of pollen are on those pieces of clothing. So is it a pollenologist? No, it's still pollenologist. I know. I want it to be pollenologist. (laughs) Petition. Petition. Because the U.S. has such a diverse range of different areas with, like, varied ecology and plant diversity and like micro habitats, they can help narrow down the locations this clothing was in because pollen apparently gets everywhere. Right. This is really cool that they're doing this with this now. Right. Yeah. Now in 2016, when this starts happening, this is an underused science for crimes. And there's still a hesitancy, I think, to use this in courts because you'd have to explain this to a jury get them to understand it and understand this whole process. But in this case, they're really just hoping to identify where buckskin doe came from before ending up in Ohio. So what did they find? Well, a few things. Some of her clothing had pollen markers that came from like the northeastern dry oak forest region. So that's very specific. Right. Where where are we talking about? (laughs) Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, or Rhode Island. Okay. So are we in this? What was it? The northeastern dry oak forest region. Are we in the northeastern dry oak forest region? I'm not certain. How okay. far does it expand? How far north does that go? There are also soot markers on her underwear that suggest that she was in an area like with a high level of vehicular traffic or industrial activity. And that seemed to suggest like a northeastern city. It's amazing what they can get just off of her clothing. Right? On the other hand... Her outer clothing, so her jeans and that jacket specifically, the pollen on there came from a more arid region, so western U.S. or northern Mexico. That's so strange. They got so many different things off of just this one outfit. Right. So that doesn't sound like they really came up with any real conclusion there. Yeah, so ideal conditions would have been like her clothing would have been in an airtight, sealed container until it could be studied for pollen. So this leads them in two very different directions of the United States. But are either of those spots 
Ohio, like where they are? No. Okay. Which suggests that she was elsewhere before she came there. Okay. So they decide to try yet another method, which is looking at the isotopes in her hair. Okay, Amy, tell me what isotopes are. Okay, so if you think of your hair like a recording device, they are able to look at the distribution of isotopes in your hair. So different regions and areas have different amounts of these isotopes in their water. So as you are drinking water, you are literally recording where you've been. Okay, so this isn't something on her hair, like the things on her clothing. This is something, this is in the quality of like her actual strands of hair. Yes. Okay. So your hair is recording where you've been when you drink the local water. Also very cool. Also very cool. Her hair was long enough to record what they think is about a year's worth of data of where she'd been. And what did they find with that? These isotopes suggest that she was traveling a lot in that year, but that she was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area slash Oklahoma region at two different points of time, and that she spent a significant amount of time there. And does that match up to any of the things they found on her clothing? Was that would match up to the, you know, the second southwest spot, right? yeah, yeah. pollen that was found. On both of the stays, they think roughly about a two-month period that she was in those locations. But one of that two-month period was at the tips of her hair, which would have been cutting off some of the records. So she could have been there for longer. So I'm confused a little bit just because with the length of her hair, there's more than one year of growth. So if it's at the tip of her hair, wouldn't that be from like five years ago? They're estimating like she has like one year of hair growth. So now she was buried, right, Amy? Yes. So can we say that... Do we think that they took these samples of hair before they buried her? I'm guessing so because there's not talk of exhuming her at all. Okay. So what this did is it didn't lead them to anything like super clear, but it did give them a direction to go to like distribute flyers and information in those various areas to try to see if anyone recognized her. Okay. So are they doing all of this with the, the drawings that they've made of her? Yeah, so they've, you know, she's got updated drawings, which is good because her original drawing was, it was hard to really imagine what she might have looked like. They're like, you know, searching in these areas, just trying to put out there, like, do you know this girl? Okay. And did that turn up anything? No. No. We'll be back in a moment. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.
So we've done all the science, but we haven't really come to any conclusions on anything yet. No, but I mean, it was a really good thought to follow those directions. And what it does, though, is because I think those investigators were invested in new sciences, that sets them up to meet Colleen Fitzpatrick and Margaret Press, who are the co-founders of the DNA Doe Project, which is a group of volunteer investigative genetic genealogists who basically use genealogy to solve crimes like this one. Definitely an essential when you're dealing with an unidentified person, I'm guessing. Right. And so their focus is on unidentified John and Jane Doe's. And I just love them so much. I know you do. The science behind what they do is pretty awesome. Like, honestly, to me, it is so much cooler than pollen or isotopes. Basically, since DNA testing has become more accessible with home kits like those from Ancestry and 23andMe, people had been using them at this time to find birth families for adoptees. So if you were adopted and you were trying to find out who your birth family might be, you might take this home kit and then you might get some help from some genealogists who can kind of pull together all the pieces for you. She's a really great tool for that. Right. This kind of takes it a step further. In this case, like it's an unknown source, like a Jane Doe, and it uses genealogy to find out not just who they are, but also who their families are. So what would they use for this? with somebody like Buckskin Jando who has been buried. Right. So they do have a blood sample from her, which I'll get into in a minute. Okay. But it's important to point out, and I will point this out every time because I think people get confused about this, like law enforcement cannot use the information that's in Ancestry or 23andMe, like your DNA information. They have to use sites like GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA. Right. We've talked about GEDmatch before, right? Yes. And that's something that um, any of us who have done 23andMe or any of those genealogy things can actually go on and like volunteer our information. Right. And that's important because there are so many people who are users of Ancestry and 23andMe. I mean, Ancestry in 2019 had like 15 million users and 23andMe had about 10 million. Meanwhile, only about 1 million people have had uploaded their stuff to GEDmatch and only about 2 million people had done it to Family Tree DNA. So there's huge numbers of people who've not thought about this or done this before. Well, maybe some people will now. If our listeners want to do that, it's gedmatch.com. Yeah. And Family Tree DNA. So investigators talked to the DNA Doe Project and they agreed to take on Buckskin Girl as one of their cases. And her blood has, like I said, has been held in evidence, but it has been held unrefrigerated and in heparin, which is an anticoagulant. So it is not ideal conditions for the type of stuff that we can do today. Is it still usable at all? They were worried that it might not be. Okay. So the first thing they had to do is to send this out to some laboratories to see if they can get usable stuff from it. So that's what happens. And the DNA Doe Project receives her file March 28th, 2018. And this is the moment that they can upload it to GEDmatch. They had to wait for it to batch, which is basically when Buckskin Doe's DNA results get uploaded into GEDmatch and kind of meet with their database. At the time, this was taking about 12 hours. So like, I can't imagine like 
getting this information and then having to wait like hours for results. But I mean, it's relatively little wait considering how long it's been since we've found Buckskin Jane Doe. Yeah, but I have no patience. So I just feel like I would just be staring at the screen nonstop, which I feel like is what the DNA Doe Project did because they watched the results come in in real time. Well, it would be exciting, I think, at that point to see if you can figure out who she is. It would. This is like one of their like first cases. The first thing that they see are second and third cousin results appear, which is like actually pretty decent because that helps you really narrow down where you're looking. But after a few hours, they have a match, someone who might be a half cousin to her or a first cousin once removed. So that seems like it would be really exciting for them at that moment. Right. And so like basically was described as like a handshake. Like it's so close. Now the reason it could be one relationship or the other is that basically you share amounts of DNA with different family members. So with a parent, it's like roughly 50%. But, you know, you might have relationships with other people in which kind of the amount will overlap with one another. So for instance, when I got the results from my half aunt, the relationship could have been half aunt or first or second cousin, because the amounts of DNA is kind of the same for those two different relationships. That's interesting. And I don't think it's something we normally think about. Right. And it complicates like where you might look for something like buckskin dough. So the answer is not always just like one relationship and then you're good. Sometimes you might have to look at different possibilities. It makes sense. So while they can't search ancestry for DNA files, one of the things that they can do is look at publicly available trees. And if there wasn't any, they would have had to start building her family tree from scratch. Fortunately, the same person who uploaded their DNA to GEDmatch also uploaded a family tree to Ancestry. So this person's doing a lot of the work for us at this point. Yes. Thank goodness. Yes. They started working on that tree using the assumption first that she's a half cousin, and that didn't pan out at all. They couldn't see how she might fit in in that case. So they switched and they started assuming that person was a first cousin once removed, and there she was. So did they find her name right on that family tree? They did. So who is she? Her name is Marcia Lenore King, and she was listed in that family tree as missing and presumed dead. Did they say how old she was? So Marcia was born in 1959, which would have made her 21 at the time of her death. So she was a little older than we thought. Yeah. So there was this assumption that she was like in her late teens and she's a little bit older than that. I'm not going to mention, you know, her family's names just to kind of protect them in some ways, but Marcia's parents divorced when she was young and it looks like her dad remarried and moved to Kansas um, where he had several other children. And her mother, it looks like also remarried and that's how Marcia's last name changed from Sossaman, which is her dad's last name, to King. They look to have settled in the no North Little Rock, Arkansas area. So were her parents still living in Arkansas at the time? So her mom seems to have stayed in Arkansas. Her dad was in Kansas. And he passed away a few months before she was identified. Okay. Did they get any other information on her besides her name and where she was born? 
Well, we do know a little bit about her, but a lot of it is, you know, the family has really wanted some privacy surrounding this. So we know she was described a lot as friendly and kind. And in between her time in high school and her death, she hitchhiked to see her father and stepmother in Kansas. This behavior worried her father who spoke to her about hitchhiking and she told him like she only took rides from truck drivers because she found that they were friendly. And so he said, you know, or I think that that kind of still weighed on the family quite a bit. So how's her theory on that in your opinion, like the safety of truck drivers as opposed to anyone else? You know, I think it's like any other profession. You're going to find people who are friendly and nice and safe and you're going to find people who aren't. Um, I mean, I'm thankful to that point that her experience had been positive, but also like her dad, like that's like, like that sends like alarm bells off for me. Well, right. It's such a hard thing to generalize because from person to person, that safety level varies so much. Right. So she leaves them in Kansas and she went to go see other family members in Illinois. It seems like she was just kind of traveling around a little bit. Her cousin there said that she was really nice, but she seemed like something heavy was weighing on her. And while I don't know what mental illness she was diagnosed with, I do know that she had a diagnosis and was prescribed medication and she hated taking that medication. And so she stopped. She went back to Kansas to see her dad and her stepmom again. And they said that they were happy to provide a place for her, but that their condition was that she get back on her medication. And that didn't sit well with her. And so she left again. And I think at the time, mental illness wasn't as talked about. Right. Mental illness was not. I mean, even now, it's not. And honestly, like, sometimes the medications that you're given have, like, so many side effects and complications that... Right. For one person, the medication can be amazing. But then for another person, the medication can make things worse. So this was obviously something she didn't want to do. But from there, kind of her... Her presence gets a little spotty. And so in early 1981, so the year that she ends up being murdered, she was in Pittsburgh at some point, which explains that northeastern pollen industrial situation. There, she had fallen into something that is called the Way International, and she was staying with some of their believers. Is this where the cult comes in? This is definitely time for the cult. So... Not too much has been publicized about the way international, except in 1981, the year she is murdered, there was a Washington Post piece that was written about them. And it's one of the few that still exists, like... The way international still exists today? Yes. And also is minimally talked about. But in 1981, it was described as the second largest cult in America after Scientology. And they had an estimated... 40,000 members. U.S.-wide? U.S. and international. Okay, so worldwide we have a 40,000 members. Um, it is considered a fundamental Christian sect, and they believed in things like faith healing, speaking in tongues. In fact, their members were taught how to speak in tongues. They had like some survivalist leanings as well. But then they also believed in, you know, some more extremist and some problematic things on top of that. They believed in book burnings of all texts that were not produced by the way, and also were Holocaust deniers. Okay, I feel like we're dealing with a lot of that right now in just regular non-cult world. It's true. 
It's it sad. The way. They banned basically all books. So are there any books the way approved of? Just the ones that they produce. Well, that sounds both alarming and dangerous. Right. Not a direction. No, I not, thought this was going to go. No, not the right direction. One of the things that the way did in order to get up to, you know, being the second largest cult and with 40,000 estimated members was that they targeted young people. And we see this over and over with kind of cult behavior. And they targeted young people who were particularly looking for community connections. They heavily used college campuses to do this. So they often had like young members reach out to like new friends on campus and invite them to like group sessions. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're in a cult. That's how it happens. Next thing you know. Next thing you know, you're in a cult. Okay. There is some discussion on message boards now about people's experience with the way back all the way in the like 70s, 80s, 90s. The way has been around since the 1940s. Okay, wow. So they're firmly established. Right. Some of those members there mention that like that people would become kind of like missionaries for the way and be headquartered or sent to different cities in order to like get new members in new locations. There's also some mention that like they were encouraged to hitchhike to spread the word. So I don't know how much of this or if this is what Marcia was doing as she was traveling around in various locations, but it kind of feels fitting and maybe appealing for someone like her who liked to kind of move around. So they encourage them to hitchhike. Is this like a low budget situation? Well, it's, you know, grassroots culting. Okay. So we're thrifty culting. We're thrifty culting. I mean, you know, they had to save money so that the founder could have his own personal jet. Nice. In the weeks leading up to her murder, we know that Marcia was not in Pittsburgh, but that she had gone back to Arkansas at some point. Way members were encouraged to kind of cut ties with non-believers, which is another cult tactic, but they could go home for like things like funerals. So I'm not sure why she went back home, but she did go back there. She also went on to Louisville, Kentucky, where she had been staying with an aunt at various times. This is where she was last seen. And they have a receipt dated April 10th that places her across the river from Louisville. So two weeks before her murder. Now, at the time, did her mom and her aunt know that she was part of this cult? There is some understanding, I think, from the family that they believe that she had been like caught up in some sort of religious group. I don't know if they knew like which one and where and like what was necessarily going on. Okay. Police have more recently stated that they were able to track her to Ohio's northern Shelby County in the weeks before her death. So I think probably in that two-week gap. This is particularly important because this is a county that is between Troy, where she was found, and New Knoxville, Ohio. New Knoxville, Ohio is the center of the Way International. Is that the hub, like the headquarters? It is the hub, the headquarters. That is where the founder lived. And that town borders Shelby County. So this county is like between the Way International's headquarters and where she was found murdered. Now, Marcia was never reported missing, which her family took a lot of heat for online. So they had been missing her for 37 years. So this story spans like a really long time period. And they suddenly get a call from investigators in Ohio 
telling them that their loved one is dead and that she had been a Jane Doe. And so suddenly they're trying to find out information and they're stumbling on these thousands of message board posts about her, this like Facebook page about her. And that had to be incredibly disorientating. And also like these are people who spent years trying to figure out who she was. And so I think there was some kind of like possessiveness about her and what happened to her. At this point, those people online are probably so invested that they feel protective of her. And so those questions come up, like why, if you if you think it's unsafe that she is hitchhiking, you think it's unsafe that she's in this religious group, yet you're not reporting her missing when you don't hear from her. So I can see how the people in that group might have that like need to question that. Right, and I think, you know, not to have to defend the family because we're not, even people who cared about her all those years, we're not privy to all the information about what was happening. But I think I want to make like perfectly clear, not that I have to defend them or the family should have to defend themselves, but they had tried to report her missing. But you're trying to report someone missing who is an adult and who is not missing under like mysterious circumstances or threatening circumstances. And so the police at the time like did not take them seriously, would not file a report and... So they were unable to do that. And do you think that really comes down to it being victims of the times? Like like now, I don't think it would have been approached the same way. Not necessarily true, because I know that there are still some cases where, you know, people are trying to report their loved one missing. And because, you know, they are adult people and there aren't like clear cut circumstances of them being in harm's way, that those cases are not taken seriously or not taken at all. So that's something that we should try to change in the future. Right. And so this family is suddenly in this space with like literally thousands of people who are largely like amazing because they have spent years like thinking about her and caring for her. But there's like, you know, always that small contingent that is like messaging them and like threatening them in some way. And so part of that like ends up them wanting a lot of privacy about her, which I completely understand right so another factor is that i think people need to recognize that like marcia was actually like her family loved her they cared for her she was an important part of their family and to find out that this happened that her was and of course it would be really upsetting the other factor is is that she not only was like the most popular jane doe and all these like message boards she's like one of the first publicized doe cases that was solved and that's thanks to dna doe that's thanks to dna doe project right but that also means that suddenly they were in this like media spotlight so trying to reconcile what happened to their loved one at the same time like i can't imagine i can't no in 2018 her living family members who are able to travel came to pay respects to marcia and to replace the headstone at riverside cemetery with one that says her name. And her siblings' names are listed on the back. Her mother wanted to keep her there because she felt that this is Ben Marcia's resting place for so long that this just seems fitting that she stayed there. 
also it was felt like the town of Troy had taken care of her for so long that this feels like particularly fitting. Like there are people who still go and they mark now her birthday. They mark the day that she was found. So it's like really quite beautiful and I completely understand like that this was like a really generous and touching choice to leave her in the care of the people of Troy. Right. At this time, it's just the best thing for her. Right. So do we know what happened to her? So, you know, police are still investigating that line of thought, like what might have happened to her. There is still an investigation happening to determine who might have done this. There have long been theories. So one of the main theories is that like maybe a truck driver placed her there and that predates her identification. And now hearing that she often hitchhiked with truck drivers, like that seems a bit fitting to me. On the other hand, particularly in the message boards, you'll see people like wondering if she was actually a victim of domestic violence. And that's largely because her clothing was clean, her feet were clean, her shoes weren't there. Like, was she at a house or residence when she was murdered? Um, There's also like the like cult angle. Could it have been someone from that group? Who knows? But I'm hoping that they're able to use science to identify who might have done this. Now we are going to listen to Amy's poem, Prime, read by Mercedes Rose. Mercedes Rose was born to be a performer and does it all. She has appeared in feature films like What the Bleep Do We Know and the Train Master series and on network television shows such as Portlandia and Leverage. She has also worked in commercials, done voiceover work, including the voice of Princess Rosalina in several popular Nintendo game titles, performs stand-up and sketch comedy, and most recently is one of the stars and creators of the new media sensation, The Haunting of Sunshine Girl. Prime. Unidentified woman discovered April 24, 1981, near Troy, Ohio. The day the green man comes, I wear another life stitched into a coat. Flayed skin slaps as he downshifts past his 18-wheeler humming. The cab flashes like a lure, not rotting vegetation or heat of earth, but cold, hard metal. Inside, it is hotter than it has a right to be. Hair spools against the nape of my neck. With one hand, he fingers a curl, his skin rough like bark. From the cab, I watch white lines coursing past. The green man removes my coat, that piece of flesh. Turned inside out, it's lined the color of bruising. He folds it between us, such a small barrier. Outside, it is barely spring, snow still clutching the ground beneath the thick pine trees. The green man waits for an offering of blood to bring life. This I should have remembered. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point 
when you're wrong. That was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 